Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, You Know Everything. It's based upon the lectionary readings from May 5th, 2019. Here's a composite memory. I am 5, 8, 12, 16 years old. I've sassed my mother or lied to my father. I've ruined a new dress, stayed out too late, misbehaved in church or ignored my chores. I've failed in some way, trivial or terrible, and I've been caught. But the most painful part of the memory is not the discovery. It's what happens after I'm caught, after I apologize, after I'm punished and sent to my room. The darkest part is the shame. I didn't grow up in a home or culture that practiced restoration. Despite my family's best intentions, we never found our way to the language of grace. We never said or heard, I forgive you, or it's okay, or I still love you. Instead, we abandoned the wrongdoer in our midst to a thick, damning silence. We withdrew affection to reestablish honor. We avoided eye contact, shut down authentic conversation, and rendered the offense and the offender invisible. Eventually, after hours, days, or weeks, depending on the severity of the sin, the ice thawed and life returned to a bruised normal. But an unnameable wound still festered below the surface a thick, hot shame that coated my body and assured me that I was unfixable, unlovable, and wrong. This week's Gospel reading begins with shame so thick it makes me cringe. It begins with the disciple Peter battling his shame on a fishing boat in the Sea of Tiberias. Peter, the rock. Peter, whom Jesus astounded with the miraculous catch of fish. Peter, a fisher of men. Peter, who proclaimed Jesus the Son of God before any other disciple dared to. Peter, whose mother-in-law Jesus healed. Peter, who walked on water. Peter, who saw Jesus transfigured on a mountaintop. Peter, who promised to stay by Jesus' side even unto death. Peter, whose courage failed so catastrophically around a charcoal fire on the night of Jesus' arrest that I'll bet he expected to spend the rest of his life fleeing from that single, searing memory. Hey, I saw you with Jesus. You must be one of his followers. No. No, I am not. I swear I don't even know the man. This Peter returns to his fishing boat. Isn't that what we all do when we're ashamed? Retreat to whatever is safe, comfortable, and familiar. Run headlong towards something, anything that will help us feel competent and worthy again. Peter flees to his boat, his nets, his vocation before Jesus, as if there is some time or place in his life where shame is not, where his wound is not, where Jesus is not. But of course, there is no time or place in our stories where Jesus isn't. He is just as present in our fleeing as he is everywhere else, just as loving in the midst of our failures as he is when we succeed. It's not Jesus who has stakes in drawing out our humiliation or maximizing our penance. That stuff is on us. It's on our flawed theologies, our voyeuristic obsession with other people's failures, our need to rebuke and shame wrongdoers in order to keep ourselves pure. Jesus doesn't have such flaws, obsessions, or needs. His will is reconciliation, and his pleasure is grace. But Peter doesn't know this. So he spends a long night trying to catch fish without Jesus, and he fails. Dawn breaks. Jesus shows up. A miraculous catch follows a night of futility, and and Peter finds himself, breathless and soaked, sitting by a charcoal fire. Again. Looking into the eyes of the Lord, he thrice denied. Again facing three costly questions, again. 
What I find both searing and instructive in this story is the way Jesus saves Peter by returning him to the center of his shame. He doesn't wrap the humiliated disciple in gauze. He doesn't avoid the hard conversation. He doesn't pretend that Peter's denials didn't happen and didn't wound. But neither does Jesus preach, condemn, accuse, or retaliate. He feeds. He feeds Peter's body and then he feeds Peter's soul. He surrounds the self-loathing disciple with tenderness and safety, inviting him to revisit his shame for the sake of healing, restoration, and commissioning. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. As I meditate on Peter's story, I wonder what our failures would feel like if we offered each other the safety Jesus offers this disciple. The safety to return to the heart of our wrongdoing and despair. The safety to wrap fresh language around our failures. The safety to experience unconditional love in the midst of our shame. The safety to try again. Around the fire Jesus builds, Peter's fear and denial, I don't know the man, evolves into trust and worship. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. In the end, Peter realizes that it's what Jesus knows that matters. Jesus knows that we're more than our worst failures and betrayals. He knows that we're prone to shame and self-hatred. He knows the deep places we flee to when we fail. And he knows how to build a fire and prepare the meal that will beckon us back to shore. Jesus' appearance to Peter, like all of the post-resurrection appearances the Gospels record, speaks volumes about God's priorities. In the days following the resurrection, Jesus doesn't waste a moment on revenge or retribution. He doesn't storm Pilate's house or avenge himself on Rome or punish the soldiers whose hands drove nails into his. Instead, he spends his remaining time on earth, feeding, restoring, and strengthening his friends. He calls Mary Magdalene by name in a garden. He offers his wounds to the skeptical Thomas. He grills bread and fish for his hungry disciples. He heals what's wounded and festering between his heart and Peter's. In other words, Jesus focuses on relationship, on reconciliation, on love. He spends the last days before his ascension, delivering his children from fear, despair, self-hatred, and paralysis. He wastes no time on triumphalism or smugness. Even at the height of his power, he chooses humility. He chooses to linger on a lonely beach till dawn, waiting for his hungry children to realize how much they need him. He chooses to ask Peter an honest and vulnerable-making question about denial, even though the answer might hurt. He chooses to feed and tend his sheep. Peter's shame meets Jesus' grace, and Jesus' grace wins. That's the story in a nutshell. As writer and research professor Brene Brown puts it, shame cannot survive being spoken, meaning shame cannot survive the living word. Shame cannot tolerate the resurrection. When shame encounters the God who is love, it burns to ash and scatters. For books this week, Dan reviews Tropic of Squalor by Mary Carr. Like many readers, I first encountered Mary Carr, the Peck professor of literature at Syracuse University, through her prose. In three best-selling memoirs, she describes growing up with a psychotic mother who packed a pistol, nearly drank herself to death, wielded a butcher knife at her two children, and married seven times. The Liars Club covered her childhood days in a small town near Port Arthur, Texas, and then Cherry treated her adolescent years. In an interview with the New York Times, Carr describes her third volume, Lit, as, quote, my journey from black belt sinner and lifelong agnostic to unlikely Catholic. Carr has also published four previous volumes of award-winning poetry that have earned her fellowships from the Guggenheim and the National Endowment for the Arts. The 36 poems in this volume were previously published in places like The New Yorker and Poetry Magazine. 
The squalor of the title refers to our messy human lives that are often full of pain and suffering, but that nonetheless search for and find some numinous light in the darkness. There are poems here about Carr's own time spent in a psychiatric hospital, her encounters with the homeless street people of New York City, the environmental and economic exploitation of the oil industry in her native Texas, and the life of her unlettered father. There are at least three poems that are rooted in her relationship with the novelist David Foster Wallace, who took his own life in 2008. I had two minor complaints about this collection. First, there is no introduction or afterward that sheds any light on the composition of these poems. And second, none of the poems are dated, which would have helped to put them in context. For example, a couple of the poems reflect on the 9-11 terrorist attacks in New York City, and it would have been interesting to know more about their provenance. Still, this latest volume by Carr shows why both her prose and poetry speak to many people today. For movies this week, Dan reviews Springsteen on Broadway. On October 3, 2017, Bruce Springsteen opened an eight-week show at Juja Meissen's Walter Kerr Theater on Broadway in New York City. With nothing but his guitar, harmonica, and a piano, the boss was alone on the stage to tell stories about his life through monologue and song. The production was so wildly popular that it ex was extended three times after its initial eight-week run. Eventually, it ran for 236 sold-out performances, the very last of which was on December 15, 2018. This Netflix documentary film is a recording of that final performance. I chose Broadway for this project, says Springsteen, because it has the beautiful old theaters which seem like the right setting for what I have in mind. In fact, with one or two exceptions, the 960 seats of the Walter Kerr Theater is probably the smallest venue I've played in the last 40 years. My show is just me, the guitar, the piano, and the words and music. Some of the show is spoken, some of it is sung. It loosely follows the arc of my life and my work. All of it together is in pursuit of my constant goal to provide an entertaining evening and to communicate something of value. Most of us would not or could not go to a live performance in New York City, but thanks to Netflix, you can still enjoy an intimate evening with one of the world's great cultural icons. The New York Times puts it this way, As portraits of artists go, there might never have been anything as real and beautiful on Broadway. And lastly, for poems for this third Sunday of Easter, Start Close In by David White. Start Close In don't take the second step or the third. Start with the first thing, close in, the step you don't want to take. Start with the ground you know, the pale ground beneath your feet, your own way to begin the conversation. Start with your own question. Give up on other people's questions. Don't let them smother something simple. To hear another's voice, follow your own voice. Wait until that voice becomes an intimate, private ear that can really listen to another. Start right now. Take a small step. You can call your own. Don't follow someone else's. Don't follow someone else's heroics. Be humble and focused. Start close in. Don't mistake that other for your own. Start close in. Don't take the second step or the third. Start with the first thing. Close in. The step you don't want to take. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for March 5th, 2019. I'm Debbie Thomas.